There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombach. We've got a great show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Arizona State Representative Reginald Boulding. We had a great conversation that covered how he got into politics, the challenges he's working to solve through state government, and his advice to people interested in or frustrated by the political process. You can learn more about Reggie at reginaldbolding.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which are listed in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. Please subscribe to the show, leave a review, share with a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us bring awareness to action today is Representative Reginald Boldine from District 27 in the great state of Arizona. Welcome, Reginald. Thank you for having me. Centauri. This should be good. Are you a compromise kind of a guy, or win at all costs, crush your enemies? What do you prefer? Oh, I think it depends on the situation. Okay. Well, if you were in politics, what would it be? I don't want to say that on the record. Say it. (laughs) I think I would go in wanting to be a person of compromise, but ultimately realize that if I want to get anything done, I have to crush my enemies. That's just what I, I don't know. I'm basing that on nothing. Wow. If only there was someone here who could answer that question from experience. <laughs> yes, yes. Reggie, how has your experience been? Uh, number one, how, how long have you been in the legislature? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is um, going into my fourth year. Um, fourth year in the legislature, um, second term, and uh, we have these things. Or every two years, we have to get back out there and knock on doors in 115 degree heat. So that's always fun. Uh <laughs> So, you know, I I consider myself more of a compromise type guy, right? You know, recognizing that we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences, you know, uh, that, you know, anytime you put, you know, 90 individuals in a confined space and ask them to agree, uh, you're probably going to need to compromise. I grew up with two other brothers. You put the three of us in the same room and ask us, what's for dinner? (laughs) We're going to all have three different answers. So just right. imagine we're talking about policy that's affecting millions of folks. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a primarily Republican-dominated legislature. Yes, yeah, so Republicans have controlled the legislature um, for like 60 years. Um, it's actually much closer than people think, right? So in the state Senate, we have 30 members. Um, 17 of the members are Republican and 13 of the members are Democrats. So um, in order to get anything passed, you need 16 votes. So um, the Senate's two votes shy of a a tie. Um, And then on the House side, there's 60 members. 35 are Republican, 25 are Democrats. So it's a five-vote difference to get anything passed. So um, Arizona has been red, but it's looking much more purplish. Got it. So what has been, I guess, the biggest surprise from the outside looking in, now you are inside the machine? Right. Yeah, so the, the biggest surprise is, uh, you know, there are there's pieces of legislation and, and stakeholder meetings that I would have never thought uh, I'd be dealing with. For instance, 
uh, at one point in time, we had uh, the funeral home industry, the funeral home lobby. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, and they were uh, competing for legislation against um, organ donors. So uh, apparently, people who are donating their organs, they're less likely to go through traditional uh, funerals. Mm -hmm. And if, as you, if you've ever had to bury anyone, you know funerals are very expensive. Um, and I guess that's cutting in, cutting into the share, right? I mean, everything that we deal with at the legislature in some form or fashion is economically driven. Whether you have uh, funeral homes uh, going against, you know, or the organ donor industry, or you know, conversations between you know doctors and nurses on scope of practice and what you can prescribe, what you can't prescribe. Um, you know, uh, our, our prison system, right? We have a private prison system that's thriving here in the state of Arizona. So everything down there, there's some type of economic interest. And I think that uh, causes, uh, you know, that was something that was very surprising to me. So, very surprising. Reginald, can you uh, briefly just tell us what, what was the impetus of you becoming an elected official? Like what made you want to do this work? No, that's a great question. So uh, I've been in Arizona now for about 10 years. Um, I'm born and raised in, in uh, Akron, Ohio, small town, uh, Northeast Ohio, um, just uh, south of Cleveland. Um, went to school at the University of Cincinnati. I was on my way to become a lawyer. Um, I would always stay up at night and watch um, Law and Order and the practice, and I just knew I was going to be that litigator in, in front of the courtroom, you know, telling a witness, you know, to give us the truth. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I, you know, applied to law school, got accepted, received a full ride to go to Ohio State, and I literally learned about um, this organization called Teach for America. I had no clue what it was. It's a nonprofit organization that primarily recruits um, recent college graduates and people changing professions to become a teacher for two years. So I fell in love with the, the mission of the organization. I applied, moved to South Phoenix, and taught at a school called Percy O. Julian Middle School in South Phoenix. Um, there, uh, fell in love with my kids, um, but it was also there that I learned about this thing called educational inequity, and, and I really didn't realize that, um, you know, depending on the neighborhood and options that you live in, grow up in, uh, determines what opportunities you get. I didn't think it was okay that my kids had to walk to school in the streets because there was no sidewalks, or as a teacher, I had the Xerox copy textbooks because we literally didn't have enough for all of our kids to take home. Or the classroom next door to mine had a substitute teacher every single day. So these kids, they didn't have a certified teacher um, for one of their classes. So that convinced me it's not just what's happening between the four walls in our classrooms. What is the system? How can we actually change the system to really provide our kids with opportunities? So I said, if not me, then who? If not when? If not now, then when? So I decided to jump in. And that was back in 2012. Well, well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was, uh, it was, it's quite experience, you know. Um, I, I first uh, got involved in politics back in Ohio. Um, my mentor, um, his name's uh, James Johnson, a, a guy who was the president of a bar association in Ohio, and he invited me to a fundraiser, and uh, at this fundraiser, my job was to um, hold coats and purses for this politician. The politician turned out to be Barack Obama, and this was early 2007. Wow. I had no clue who Barack Obama was, um, and so 
I have my job was to hold coats and purses as Obama took photos with uh, donors and, and guests at this fundraiser, and uh, it was there that I realized that um, it was it was actually a very interesting time. And it was there I realized that, huh, this is let me figure out who this guy is. I began to follow his career, and uh, it was just an interesting dynamic. So, first job in politics, holding coats and purses. Wow. Yeah. So what would you say, I'm, I'm very curious, because uh, I know you'd be candid, what has been like the most frustrating piece of this over the last couple of years? I think for me, um, I, I always knew that um, politics was a, 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 a field which, in which you had to compromise. Um, but I think the pacing of um, legislation is so slow. We live in a 24-7 hour cycle. Like We text people and like we want them to respond in, in three seconds. And if it's three minutes, we're like, we've already lost con- con- you know, concentration or we're wondering like, what's going on. With regards to legislation, like the, the state um, constituents, people want things to happen yesterday. Um, and, and as I mentioned, uh, it's open. You know, when you have different people from different experiences, different parts of the state, it takes a long time for people to compromise. So uh, legislation and pushes that you want to get done today, um, it may take you a couple years, actually, just to get that bill passed, which is uh, not at the pace that I, I typically like to operate. I better, um, our listeners would like to know, what are some of the things that across the aisle people just fundamentally do agree on? Like these, no matter what people are going to say, we, yeah. we can align on this. But, you know, that's a good question, right? Um, so one, one thing that also that was very surprising for me, about 80% of all of the bills that we vote on are, by, are, are bipartisan. I'm at the legislature. So 80% of all of the bills you have, Republicans and Democrats, we vote on the same thing. It's probably about... about 10% of the bills, which we will never agree, and then another 10% where you can get folks who are on either side to, to compromise. But the, the majority of the bills, we always support. Um, I think that uh, with regards to things surrounding, you know, health care, well, health care in terms of um, uh, the quality of care, we come to agreement as far as, you know, who's paying for it, things of that nature. We, we still have some disagreements there. So quality of care, um, anything like qu- most quality of life type um, issues we tend to agree on. Um, you know, there's been a lot of consensus uh, around public safety. Um, mm. So uh, so there's consensus around there. Veterans, things of that nature. Or there's also consensus or Firefighters, public, you know, so some of those things we find consensus. Got it. So eighty percent of the stuff, it's it's not really that contentious necessarily. Yeah. Ten percent, it's never going to be worked out, and then you have the ten percent where there is actually the opportunity to yep. do that whole compromise, compromise, compromise thing that we heard about years ago. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, but you know, if you if you read the newspaper, you look at the. Look at the news. You're only going to hear about that ten percent where we're we're banging our heads. I mean, no, no one, no one wants to read. Uh, everyone's getting along. Like that's Republicans not, and Dems work together. Republicans and Dems, you know, getting together, voting on that. That, that just it's not exciting. Um, we live in a in a in a in a, in a house of cards type atmosphere when it comes to politics. We wanna we want to see the contention. We want to see. Um, uh, things that are making people feel a particular way. Obviously, we like reality TV and reality TV stars. Yes, yes. Obviously. Right. 
So your mentor's name was James? James, yes. And James was obviously an attorney. He was president of the Bar Association. Yes. And he was supportive of you pursuing the Teach for America versus going to law school. You know, James, absolutely. He tr- he trusted my judgment. And, and the plan for me was to, you know, to teach for two years um, and then go back to law school. I was going to seek a, what was called a deferment. Um, and uh, after the two years, I started teaching sixth grade. So I did this thing called looping. So I taught sixth graders. And then when they moved to the seventh grade, I still was their teacher. And, uh, you know, you don't finish middle school until you finish the eighth grade. And there was no way I was going to leave my kids before they went out to high school. So I decided to loop with them again. At that point in time, I figured law school would be there. And then from there, moved to Arizona State and became a clinical instructor um, as well. So did a little bit of K-12 and higher ed as well. So bring a, a, some, some different perspectives with regards to education. That's an awesome story of personal responsibility right there and commitment, yeah. making sure that you saw your kids all the way through to Absolutely. high school. Nice. I think that that's, that, that, that's pretty incredible. So, all right, so now four years in the legislature, um, thoughts of, I, I think that when I graduated college, I thought I wanted to go to law school too, mm-hmm. and it's not because I wanted to be an attorney because I really didn't know much about what an attorney was, but more I saw it as a means to have influence or maybe have a little bit more control because you had knowledge of the law. Yes. So now yes. that that was probably part of, of your motivation, but then now being a politician, you, have, right. you get to exercise control and have influence. Right. Do you see yourself going back and getting that law degree at some point or pursuing politics, moving, continue serving Arizona and maybe national politics? You know, one one thing that I have learned is that I would I would rather be uh, in the position of crafting the law than interpreting the law. <laughs> so, uh, and, and and I think from the standpoint of you know being able to you know and laws you know laws are created by people and I think many times we operate through life and we we see rules that say like you can't do this or you can't do that. Um, but when you peel back the layers, it was just someone just like us who created that law, right? And, and for me, I know there's a, there's a lot of laws that have inequity in them, and there's a lot of laws that work well. And um, instead, you know, for me, instead of taking the avenue of trying to, uh, you know, defend or interpret a particular law, I would like to be on the side of just, you know, amending or changing what's currently in in practice so we then can help those folks who need attorneys down the line actually um, you know be in a better position and there's already enough attorneys anyway there is already enough attorneys (laughs) so what are some obviously you're you're passionate about education yes and tell us about if you had a magic wand and you could pass any legislation what what would some of those things be so um, in the state of Arizona, uh, well, I, you know, with regards to education, if I had a magic wand, um, I would I would take education out of the political process altogether. Hmm. Um, when I think about the we, the reasons why our kids um, don't do well is because it's highly political, from school boards um, up to the presidency of the United States. Um, every time you have a different administration or administrator. 
Um, they have their own ideas. They have their own perspective. Um, and that perspective lasts until that administrator is replaced. Mm -hmm. Then there's a new administrator or a new administration with a different idea in place. So uh, as of when, I was a, when I was a teacher, um, in three years, I had three different superintendents. So wow. we started one uh, reading program, and we never got a chance to actually go through the fidelity of that program. We switched to a different reading program. Then we switched to a different reading program. So in three years, we've had, we had three different curriculums um, because everyone had the silver bullet in place. And, uh, you know... With uh, you know the Obama administration, they had their own perspectives and goals. Um, uh, Secretary Duncan, um, you know what they were looking to do there, and uh, race to the top was the initiative that they had. And um, a new and that was eight years. Now you have a new administration. It's going to say, you know, that race to the top thing. I don't like it. Let's try something something different. And then you know, go another four years. Someone else may have another idea. And what happens is our kids are. They're still at play. They're, they're still in the K-12 system for, for 13 years. So as administrations change, directions change, our kids, they still remain in the system. And they find themselves being um, uh, sort of pawns in this mm -hmm. game of uh, educational practice. So I, I would want to take education out of the political realm. Within the state of Arizona, the big thing that I care most about in the legislature um, it's related to early childhood education. Um, that's, that's one of the major things. A lot of people don't know. In the state of Arizona, we don't fully fund kindergarten. In fact, kindergarten is not even a requirement um, for kids actually to attend in Arizona. Like Children are, legally can start in the first grade, um, which when you look at other places across the country, that's not the, that's not the norm. Um, we also don't fund... Uh, Pre-K, Head Start, um, and uh, that's that's an issue. We know our kids; they learn they learn the most when they are the youngest. But we provide zero funding mm -hmm. during that period of time, and we expect them to read by the third grade. We expect them to pass eighth grade algebra. We expect them to graduate high school, but we literally have not given them any resources at the beginning of the continuum. So, uh, early focus there. Do you? And say what you can about it, but it must be frustrating to know that there's the data behind the efficacy of early early childhood. I mean, that is the best investment of dollars that anyone yes. could do. But it doesn't seem like our legislature or maybe the other from other states. I don't really know their K through twelve systems are focusing on that. So if you have a data data the prescription for it, but then you have folks saying no, we're not going to do that. Is that not just frustrating every day? It is, and and you know uh, the biggest reason why. It, from my perspective, is that kids don't vote, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, and, and to be to be honest, mm. right? When you think about, you know, um, mm. policies that are directly related to children, um, that people don't have the same urgency as they have when there's policies directly related to, mm. uh, to seniors, who are who are highest voting populations, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, since kids don't vote, I, you know, if kids cast ballots, I mean, we'd have one of the best funded K-12 systems in the country, right. right? But the fact of the matter is, like, that's not the reality. Um, and I think also uh, when you think about tracking a child from kinder to college, that's, we're talking, you know, 
16, 20 years. And, and we live in a cycle of what have you done for me lately? So from politician standpoint, they, they tend to not have the patience to wait the 10 to 15 years to show that they've actually really made a difference and they can point to quantifiable changes. It's really, you really have to have uh, politicians who realize that I'm going to put this in place and realize that I'm probably never going to get to see the payoff why I'm still in office, but that's okay. And that's just typically not the way that politics often works. So one of the biggest one of the biggest issues with our educational system here in Arizona is that there's no funding for pre-K and there's no funding for kindergarten, so those aren't necessarily required. So kids at the age when they need it the most are getting don't maybe go. Right. And if you had a magic wand, you would remove politics from education. And we know that the biggest driver of politics is money. So it's all coming back. Yes. This whole money thing. It is. Yeah. It, it all comes down to money. Four and a half billion, around four and a half billion dollars, our state budget, those dollars go toward education. The, the, uh, the governor just proposed the largest budget in Arizona history this past Friday, uh, $10.1 billion. So now as a legislature, um, it's our job to determine where the where this $10.1 billion will be spent. So the governor gives us his... Uh, his direction, you know, he said, this is the dollars we're going to have. I, I suggest you put these dollars here. Um, and as a legislature, we have to negotiate and figure out if that's going to be the reality. Oof. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So um, our, we had um, Jonathan Gelbart on uh, a couple of a couple of episodes ago who's running for state soup. Um, but can you tell us what percentage of our budget is um, education? So that four point percent about Yeah, but about uh, so education is the largest percentage. So right. about forty six percent of the budget is education. So about four point five, four point six billion dollars goes to education. And how does that benchmark na- nationally? Are so we- so we have so with regards to per pupil fund, there's a couple of different pots. But with regards to per pupil funding, um, we are uh, the lo- one of the lowest in the country. So essentially, if you have you know John, Jane, and Mike, so. Uh, there, there's a certain amount of dollars that goes to John. So if John is in elementary school at a low-income school, we'll give him you know six thousand um, dollars. Jane, she's in high school, Phoenix L. We'll give her like eight thousand dollars because she's in high school. It's a different weight. And then Mike, if you know Mike uh, is at a a, a, a charter school, um, he gets a, a separate, a different amount as well. So each one of our kids have a per pupil funding, um, and for every kid, there's a dollar amount that school districts receive, and and that amount is one of the lowest in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So let's just assume that there's twelve main, or rather, let's just assume that there's ten main areas that we need to allocate $10 billion to. Um, And you said that it's the largest proposed budget that we've ever had, which makes sense to me because hopefully the state's doing better so we have more money coming in. Um, How contentious is the allocation of those $10 billion to 10 different areas? Is it usually about the same? Like education usually gets about 45% of it, Senior, whatever. Right. So, so the every state and primarily every state they, they do three things. And primarily, when we're looking at Arizona. We do three things 
all the time. So we, we educate, we medicate, and we incarcerate. So those three things are where, those are the top three areas of the budget. So education, um, and you also look at our, our access system. Um, so folks who are on uh, Medicaid, and then, uh, and then we also look at uh, incarceration. So uh, we spend more to incarcerate than we do on higher ed. So, you know, those are those are areas that we spend the most money that you can see consistently. Um, and then you have other areas uh, of the budget that are important. So we have our Department of Child Safety who deals with um, our foster children. Um, th those they play a role. Department of Transportation, um, Department of Public Safety, so our Highway Patrol, you know, that, that's another major area as well. So there's other areas within um, uh, the state budget that we have to maintain and focus. As a state, we've been more from a preventative, uh, I'm sorry, even more of a reactive side than a preventative side. So instead of us creating systems that will not uh, push people into poverty. We wait till people end up in poverty, mm -hmm. or we wait till people end up um, sick, and then we try to actually uh, provide systems in order to uh, to try to move the needle once they're already there, instead of prevention. And um, that's one of the things that we we try to advocate a lot for. It's like how can we actually put dollars into preventing you know, folks from actually finding themselves in these situations. I mean, in medicine is one key, you know, we, we, folks who don't have health insurance tend to go to the doctor once they're sick. You know, if you um, are lucky enough to have health insurance, you go to, you go for a checkup, you know, you, you take recommendations so you don't find yourself uh, in that position. Right. So, yeah. So people don't have a lot of time, so we're more just struggling to Put out the fires that we have so we can't look forward. That's, that's yes. interesting. So let's assume that, that every everyone in the state legislature has some project or some mm. thing that they really want to adv advocate for yep. on the budget. Perhaps some, one person has a lot, perhaps one person has fewer. How, how cooperative are folks in having those kinds of conversations and listening to one another? So um, within the budget, it, typically the budget, um, so the, the governor's office plays a, a major role, primarily because they, he has the power of veto. Um, the budget is actually a, a bill. So um, we have to craft a bill, and the bill is sent to the governor. He can choose to veto it or not veto it, So which, which means that the governor has a lot of leverage to say, you know, I've asked for $5 million to go to X project you gave me four. I'm not going to pass the other projects that you want unless you give me my $5 million. Mm -hmm. so, so the governor has a lot of leverage because he can decide what's going to happen or not. There's also a, a number of other people who have uh, leverage there. So the appropriations chair, so the chairman of the appropriations committee, um, their job is to actually... Um, introduce the budget throughout their committee. So nothing can pass the legislature unless it goes to committee. And you have 19 different committees. The Education Committee, Transportation, Insurance, Health. Um, but for the budget, it has to go through the Appropriations Committee. So the chairman decides what bills go to the Appropriations Committee and what bills don't. 
So um, the chairman, the governor, and you know the speaker of the house and the president, they play the largest role because they can choose to speed up the process or slow down the process. You also have a number of uh, lobbyists and interest groups mm-hmm. that that try to get their projects in the budget. So they do whatever they can to you know meet with the Senate president or the speaker or the governor's office to figure out if there's any way for their project to actually get inside of the budget that way they can get the appropriation that they need. Yeah. Interesting. So many moving parts. So many there, moving parts. There, are, there are. There are. Reggie, I, I'm curious, what is, uh, given the captive audience and the work that you do, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the legislature or how the state government works? I think so. So the legislature is it's unique in that um, it's one place of government that I'm not entirely sure that all of our uh, citizens really understand that it exists mm. or understand its role. So we are constantly in this uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC news cycle where we see what happens in Washington, D.C. So when we think senators or representatives, we think what's happening in Washington, D.C. And we don't realize that actually the legislation that happens at the state capitol is much more impactful than what happens mm-hmm. from D.C. So people don't often realize that they also have a, a state senator and a state representative. Um, and their role and their job is to craft like all legislation that, all legislation that pertains to the state. In essence, the federal government only plays a role with regards to, to, to funding, but the state controls every mm-hmm. other aspect. And, and I don't think people realize that the state actually is much more critical than the federal government. So I think one is the awareness re- regarding the state legislature. And I think the other piece is the access that people can have to their elected officials um, uh, by reaching out, um, I, I don't. I think people believe that um, they can't reach out to their elected officials, um, or they have to go through some very difficult process to do that. Um, but anyone has the ability to simply, you know, pick up the phone, call the house, the Arizona House of Representatives, call the state senate, and ask to meet with your representative. Um, uh, you know, send them an email, give them your opinion, and pe- that is that is something that people can absolutely do. Is there a certain language that you recommend and a certain method? Is calling better or is emailing better? Yeah, it, it really depends on the member. Um, I, I prefer, I always tell people to call because you're going to, so every uh, member of the House and member of the Senate has an assistant. Um, and that assistant answers the phone and they're gonna see the legislator at some point in time. So building a great relationship with the assistant, uh, you know, it's with any any business, you wanna uh, build a relationship with the gatekeepers, that way the gatekeepers can then, you know, prioritize prioritize yourself and your message. So I would say calling is huge. Um, As you can imagine, we probably receive 700 emails daily. So, that can also be difficult, uh, and, and it may not be a representative is not reaching out to someone. They may have just not seen it. Right. <laughs> you know, they've just seen the message or the email. Um, but calling is always, I would say, the best. And 
in Forma, you know, I always tell people that I would call and meet a representative just to meet them as individuals without an ax. So then when you come back in there for an ax, it's a much better conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So you build a relationship first, and I think that's the best approach to go. That's such yeah. great advice. That's really good. I completely agree that I yeah. don't think people really have a very good grasp yeah. of, of how state government works. And yeah. I mean, look, uh, I, I grew up um, in an a underserved community, um, and our, our primary focus, you know, was you know, school and, and, and employment, and um, we didn't pay, focus a lot of attention on politics. That's just, we growing up, that just wasn't our major focus. Um, so I, as a, as a child in high school and even throughout college, I focused often on what was happening in D.C. because I could actually turn on the, uh, the cable TV and I can see it. Um, it's not the same with the legislature unless you know where to look. You have to know where to look and then you can actually find that information. So, uh, and I also say that the system has been designed to make it difficult for people to actually know that they have access. Um, there's a reason why we have meetings at 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. during the middle of the day. Most citizens are at work. They can't make it down there. Um, so that really um, balances the scales to um, people who are in positions of privilege, flexible schedules, or lobbyists who are representing organizations. And the normal person, they can't just, you know, sit down there for three hours or four hours day after day uh, to weigh in on bills. Got it. Yeah. <clears throat> Excellent stuff. Um, well, Reggie, where can people learn more about you? So there's a number of different uh, places. Um, so I try to stay um, active on social media. And then, and if you are interested in keeping an update of what's taking place at the legislature, what bills I'm working on, um, social media is great. So Twitter is just at Reginald Bolden. Um, so that's my Twitter handle. On uh, Facebook, it's um, at Bolding for Arizona. So Facebook.com slash Bolding for Arizona. Um, and then Instagram, you know, at Reginald Bolding. And then my website, just at ReginaldBolding.com uh, as well. So I'm um, trying to stay active on those uh, channels just to let people know that there are um, fundamental, monumental uh, pieces of legislation that we pass every single day, and people should definitely play a role. Excellent. Well, I have one more question. What's the deal with Akron? Why, why does everybody love Akron? Yeah, you know, so, <laughs> all right, man. So, so yeah, so uh, Akron, Ohio, man, that is, that is the hometown. I like to say the hometown for me, but there's also another guy from Akron, Ohio, LeBron James. So... Uh, coincidentally, uh, him and I, we actually went to the same middle school and same high school as well. Um, and uh, Le LeBron, he's, uh, he does a lot of good for Akron. At one, fun fact about Akron, at one time it was uh, the rubber city capital of the world. So it was like 65 or 70 percent of all tires were manufactured in Akron, Ohio. Wow. At one point. That's hard to believe. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, what's place with the with the Midwest um, manufacturing took its role, right. and a lot of folks who had those jobs um, they they lost them. So yeah. yeah. 
but it must be a wonderful place. People from Ohio are proud to be from Ohio. They love it. And, and, and they love it. And obviously, LeBron is a huge fan of Akron. And, and I love LeBron. So I was just, just curious. For you yeah, no, most definitely. definitely. So, Tari, what have we forgot to talk about? Answered all my questions. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me. And it's always good to, to be informed, to really talk about things that are happening in the state of Arizona. Thank you, Reginald. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a review and share the show with somebody you think would appreciate or does appreciate good ideas. And as always, and as always keep questioning because the struggle is real.